0: Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 12 of Improv Treehouse. This week we're speaking to Stephen Davidson about his workshop and book, Play Like an Ally. I also want to take a moment to plug a show that Stephen is doing tomorrow on the 10th of December 2019, Love and Misinformation, which is an improvised play in the style of Carol Churchill at ImprovFest UK. Uh, so check that out if you're in or around London. Um, thanks so much and enjoy the episode. <music> Stephen Davidson, hello. Hi. Um, So we've literally just, I think 20 minutes ago, finished your Play Like an Ally workshop, which was brilliant, Um, and we're going to talk about it a bit, Um, but first, before we get into that, um, I always like to ask, um, how did you become an improviser?
1: Oh, um, so I was an improvising musician before I was in theatre at all. Uh, I wrote my master's degree on how people learn to improvise. and I did a uh, sort of interdisciplinary study, so I studied theater pedagogy, dance pedagogy, and music pedagogy, uh, and used uh, queer theory and general uh, feminist theory, which is not really a thing because there are many, many specific kinds, but that world of academia to uh, analyze the way that we uh, establish norms within a group and that that is as much the skill of improv as in music uh, learning the instrument, and in theater learning the rules. Uh, it's, uh, it's a community creation. Uh, so the style of musical improv that I was doing is called free improv, which means there's no chord structure or format. Uh, you can literally do anything. Uh, but if you can do anything, how do you get better at it? Uh, and the thing that I found was that. It's the creating the norms in the same way that we form uh, societal roles. We form roles within an ensemble. Uh, Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Um, And so then did you sort of begin, um, because you perform quite and and teach workshop quite a bit at the moment in London with uh, the nursery. Um, So did the performance, follow on to that before you
1: sort of wrote uh, play like an ally and started doing workshops from that uh yes um so i finished my master's degree in 2008 i think possibly nine i (laughs) can't count um so i've been improvising in theater since then and uh so i wrote play like an ally i think last year and used some material from the year before so there's Uh, Sort of a long stretch in there of performing and teaching before I transferred that to pure theatre.
0: Yeah. So what kind of um, shows were you doing before, Play Like an Ally?
1: Um, I've done all sorts of improv uh, over the years. I've been in short form teams and Chicago style long form teams of various types. I coach a group called q i Queer Improv, where we learn a new format every two months. Uh, I've been in a number of narrative teams uh, My website is called Impromiscuous because uh, I get around a lot in terms <laughs> of improv uh, I like basically every style of it, and I do a lot
0: yeah, yeah, so um what inspired you to create play like an ally um
1: so it initially started as a series of blog posts uh, about diversity and privilege and inclusion. Um, I think that they're really, really important not just to be nice but to fuel this art form because the longer you play, the more valuable it becomes to be really surprised in a scene. And I think if you always play with the same people or the same kind of people you can get to a point where you can see all the way to the end of the scene and at that point you're not really improvising Uh, I think we need people with different life experiences, different points of view different knowledge, uh, different gut reactions to keep improv exciting and to keep it honest in a way I feel like if you're not open to being surprised and reframing your view on a world in a scene, uh, to an extent, you're not really improvising anymore. Uh, depending on the show, you're performing uh, a hastily written sketch show, <laughs> which is not a bad thing, but it's not what I love about this art form.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so what, um, what led you to like create it as a book? Like specifically that format as a a book, because I think it's so great that there's like a physical copy of the book. Like, um, I I don't know what it it was. It is about like a a little physical book where I'm so much more likely to like engage with it and like want it as a thing. But like, so what made you like decide? Oh no, I'm going to have this like a little physical book. Uh,
1: Basically that Uh, (laughs) I wanted people to engage meaningfully with uh, the ideas, and I really like improv books that are practical and short-ish. As part of my degree I read a lot of very long, very long pedagogical academic improv books. Um, And although they were interesting, when I actually started improvising none of it helped at all. So if if it's inspired by any particular book, I would say it's uh, Jill Bernard's Small Cute Book, uh, which is even smaller than Play Like an Ally. It's tiny, it's got cute pictures, and it's uh, short, inspirational, practical things that you can do in a scene to have fun and be a better improviser. Um, And because it's a slightly specific topic, Play Like an Ally does have a few pages of essays as well, but it's largely... Uh, practical exercises and how to do them and why to do them uh, to make yourself a better improviser and a better ally.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, because yeah. So I was saying like, we did the workshop um, this morning and this afternoon, um, and it was it was brilliant. Um, and I think like what was great about it was that there was a real mix of like different kind of. Um, so it was the one that we have is sort of more uh, for people who like. Um, invigilate Is invigilate the correct word Uh like improv. So like workshop leaders or people who run companies and stuff. Um and I think one thing that you struck you said that really struck with me was like, Oh, privilege is compound. Um, so sort of speaking to like the intersectional like side of privilege where I sort of think like, Oh, you know, I am a woman in improv, um, and so therefore like I have this attitudes about myself and I can do this kind of work, um, but I can be neglectful of what it's like to be a like women of color in improv, or a um, LGBTQ woman in improv, um, how like how you, do you suggest that people sort of be mindful of like the intersectionalities of their privilege, if that's not the biggest question in the world? <laughs>
1: um, well, so I think one thing that's important to understand about privilege is that it's not just how much money you have or the job opportunities you've had. It's the way people treat you, and the way that that reflects yourself back to yourself. Uh, So the emotional byproduct of privilege is entitlement. Um, And a lot of the time, I think particularly we social warrior, left-leaning people tend to view entitlement as a negative word sometimes. Uh, But I think actually what we need is to work hard to make sure that everybody feels it. Uh, So when you walk into an improv class, you feel entitled to take space up to get your point across, to be heard, Um, and entitled to make a fool of yourself and know that that's going to be okay. Uh, And that's really difficult for people who experience less privilege in the real world because the less privilege you experience in the real world, uh, the more energy you have to spend proving that you're a competent person because people don't just assume it. Uh, And that energy expenditure becomes really draining, and it means that if you spend your whole week at work and around the shops and out in the world having to constantly prove that you deserve to be there, that you're smart enough, that you're good enough, uh, when you go on stage and something falls flat or people laugh possibly at you rather than with you or you just feel a little bit silly, the emotional impact of that is different than it would be on someone who sails through life and everyone just assumes that they're the boss when they walk into a room uh we we feel that entitlement to fail joyfully more easily if we're bolstered by our experience of the real world
0: yeah um, and you, you sort of said that you mentioned assumption mm. and like the assumptions that people make and i think that was something that i think the the group in today's rehearsal really found fascinating um and the, and the way you taught it was great because you sort of um encouraging us to think about like okay so if you're playing an an older character like what does that mean like what do we expect that person to do or not to do um and like what, what harm can those assumptions do
1: yeah um i think so when we teach people to improvise initially we often advise them to do the most obvious thing uh And we do that for good reasons because we don't want people to try to be funny and we don't want them to stress about finding the perfect thing to say. Uh, But as we progress in our improv careers that becomes more and more of a burden because the thing that is most obvious to us is usually based on our own life experience uh, and we can unintentionally limit our own choices and other uh, different people in the room by doing that. so for example, uh, I'm in an open relationship, and uh, if I'm in a scene and somebody says, I slept with your wife, I I know as an improviser that they probably want me to be mad about that. But my experience of the world is to just say, great, I hope you had a nice time. <laughs> um, and it can feel a little bit subversive to be my actual self in that scene. Uh, and I think that happens to people from many different minorities in the same sort of way. Maybe we're assuming that uh, one or two is a normal number of children to have, Mm -hmm. or it's a bit weird if you still live at home in your 30s, uh, or anything like that, that are totally normal and legit in some cultures and maybe not so much in ours. We can, our obvious thing of, (laughs) 30 and lives with his parents. (laughs) what a loser, uh, can be directly harmful to somebody for whom that's absolutely the norm in their culture and experience of the world. Uh, Particularly if at that moment they look around the room for another pair of eyes that understand and they realize, oh wait, I'm the only person here who looks like this and has this experience. They can feel very separate from a group very quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think one thing that I found really great about the workshop and I'm going to keep saying how good it was <laughs> uh, was um, there was a lot of like actual practical so, so like we you, uh, one thing was like sort of boundaries and different physical boundaries that people have um, which is something that like as a coach you you try to be aware of um, but we actually got to sort of practice like having a scene where someone is trying to physically interact with someone um, like like fairly innocently but like they're trying to um, physically hold on to them in a way that they are uncomfortable with and like different ways of editing that. Um, but why do you think that's important to include in a course?
1: Um, I think it's so easy to talk about all of these issues in uh, an abstract and intellectual way, and then weirdly difficult to actually Im- implement it in a practical way. Uh, and I also think improv is a skill that you learn by doing it. You. You can only read so much before you just have to get up and do it because it's different every time. So there's nothing besides reps that will actually get those skills into you. Yeah. Um. And I think it does take a certain amount of entitlement to go in and change a scene because you think something there isn't right. Um, so I always start with the hand-holding thing because I think it's the easiest way in to... Uh, changing a scene is to rescue someone who's visibly uncomfortable uh, because I think that's the point at which we all think somebody should do something about this so taking the moment to practice being that somebody is a really nice easy extension and so then when we start to talk about different ways that a scene can become uncomfortable if somebody says something a little bit sexist or a little bit homophobic um, it's so easy with a culture of yes and to not only let that slip but to amplify it Uh, and I think it's nice to be conscious that we have the option to say no, to say edit to leave a scene to redirect a scene, to do a tag Uh, there are all kinds of things that we can do uh, to change that or straight up just tell that person I disagree with you for this reason or do a monologue about how impactful that can be or make that person lose the game if it's a short form or if you have the time, maybe try to change the character in their point of view or change their status in a way that makes it clear that we, the group, don't support that opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, and I think one thing that I was particularly uh, struck by was you sort of talked a bit about, um, like there was one complaint about it was just, someone says something you don't agree with, you just walk off the stage and like leave them and just let them, like if what they do with it like they might have a moment with the audience or but the audience will know that like oh this show does not actually condone that person yeah Um, and you sort of mentioned something uh, around like the idea of yes and and you sort of said that you steer away a bit from teaching yes and now
1: Um, I steer towards teaching agreement which I think so agreement has more direct implication about we're agreeing on the world that we're in Whereas yes-and sometimes is interpreted as literally you need to say yes to things in a scene, which is not quite correct. Um, And I see how yes-and can sometimes lead to bad behavior going unchecked. Uh, So an example of agreement would be uh, I'll have people do a scene where there are two people at home doing the washing up together, uh, and but they're having a disagreement about something benign like our dogs better or our cats better uh, so even at a very beginner level that's a pretty easy scene to do but we get to see the difference between agreement i.e. we are doing dishes together this is our house we know each other and uh, being uh, an independent person with agency on stage you can say no cats are better
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or
1: no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Keep your hands to yourself in the same kind of way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think um, like one thing in the workshop specifically that was balanced really well was like um, time for exercises and like up on your feet and doing stuff. Um, and I'm really ca- I don't want to sp- like just say oh, and then we did this exercise and then we did this exercise because people should take the workshop themselves. Um, but there was a really great balance between like yeah ac- exercises and discussion. Mm. Um, and I was wondering how you like facilitate that because it didn 't feel like one was dominating the other, um, so how you sort of blend together workshop and discussion so well because it 's not a format i 've like encountered much before mm.
1: um, I feel like I try to always do the practical thing first and then this discussion after so that people have something to reflect on um, it 's very very difficult to play with abstract concepts, uh, which is one of the reasons why there's so many practical aspects to the workshop because uh, as I said you learn improv by doing it Um, so I'll set up a series of exercises or just one sometimes that I intend to highlight a certain issue or make a certain point uh, and work a certain skill in relation to that and then I invite people to talk afterwards about the, the skill or their experience of that because I think a lot of the time discussion about diversity is so difficult because we can take it very personally um, or we can not want to own it in a practical way. We'll say abstract things like, yes, we should do diversity more, but something like, I could have made a different choice in this scene is harder, Mm -hmm. or here's a step I could actively take is a harder place to get to from a place of abstraction. So I tend to work backwards, practical to abstract, yeah. if that makes sense.
0: No, yeah, it definitely does. Um, and I think one thing that I think you, you handle really well, is I think very easily a workshop like this could become people almost sort of asking permission to do things a certain way or being like, um, oh, can I, ca- could I do this? Or should I do this? Or what I think I nearly did a few times where I was like, oh, in the past I've done this. Was this the right thing to do? Like, they're always sort of asking for a diversity stamp or something. Like, you know, you get ten and then you get a prize, Mm. Um, like, in in the workshops. And I feel you dealt with that really well. Like, you know, the the way you sort of... So, like, this isn't really a question. I'm (laughs) realising as I'm saying it. It's just more sort of a compliment. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so how do you sort of handle when people are like, oh, so in terms of diversity, like, did I do this well? Um... And it's maybe, especially if it's maybe an area where you're not as qualified to speak. So, for example, in like issues with um, BAME people.
1: Um, I think it's really, for me, I always take things back to practical skill sets because I think it's really hard to analyze a situation after the fact anyway. But especially if I wasn't there, I, there's only so much I can say about that. So I tend to guide the conversation back to here are specific steps we can take in the future Mm -hmm. Um, so in that specific example if it's BAME uh, issues I would advise having a person from that community uh, be part of your discussion so that you're not putting words into anyone's mouth Uh, and I would also advise actively educating yourself about various BAME issues because if you're in a position of care, particularly as a teacher facilitator, uh, it's very hard to maintain that feeling of taken-caredness if you need very basic things explained to you about BAME issues. Uh, I think it really it behooves us to put some time into researching uh, various minority communities and issues that they're facing and just basic vocabulary so that we... Uh, not so that we know that it, we know it all, or are positioning ourselves as an authority, but so that we can listen and communicate meaningfully about it, uh, where people feel like they're understood and heard.
0: Yeah, brilliant An excellent use of the word behooves. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess one question, the last, because there were so many exercises that I just, I'm like, I'm now realizing the questions are just like, this exercise was great,
1: um,
0: <laughs> but I think. Um, one of the last things that we did was um, a slacker, mm-hmm. um, and you. A lot of the um, discussion was talking about like reps mm-hmm. and making sure that that people have equal stage time, uh, which I thought was great. Um, why did you choose sort of the last exercise we did? Why did you choose to utilize the slacker specifically? Um, I just, could actually maybe if you could just sort of quickly say what <laughs> so the slacker sorry. is, just in case people don't um, know.
1: So the slacker is a nice simple improv format where every edit is a tag. So basically, uh, two or more people start a scene and then to edit it, somebody else will come and tag one or more of them out, uh, leaving at least one person in. So they stay as the same character, a new scene starts. Uh, It means that every single edit, we keep one character or more from before. Uh, But because it's a format where you get a turn by actively choosing to take one, it's a very good one for working on the skill of active inclusion Uh, because if you're not careful in a format like that, front-footed people will dominate very, very hard. Um, And I think in terms of sharing stage time, once you're past a certain level of competency in improv, the skill is not just paying attention to stage time and holding back. It's actively going in and bringing people on and gifting them something where they can be set up to have a good and or easy scene and have a positive experience of being on stage. So bringing them into a scene and making an offer or bringing a couple of people into a scene, making an offer, and then leaving. You leave them to play a scene, but they're on stage and they have something to work with and you're not in your tenth scene of the show, which is nice. Um, And I think that skill of bringing people in is, more valuable than just oh I've been in four scenes already I'm just going to stand here <laughs> um, because past a certain point that puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the group
0: yeah and I think it was one of the things that as soon as you pointed it out I was like oh I do I 100% do that um, but yeah and I th- so the kind of with the one thing as well that I love about the, um, the, the book specifically is um, so you have a suggested donation of 10 pounds um, and then on the back of the book it says, Profits contribute to providing free improv classes via free Um So could you tell me a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, it's a smallish project as of right now. We're gently growing as profits from basically these books uh, come in. Um, so the idea is that if people want to offer a free or pay-what-you-can improv class, we can subsidize that so that the teacher will get paid basic acceptable salary. Um, so some of the classes that we do are pay what you can and then if the teacher takes less than a certain amount we make up the difference to uh, what would be an acceptable salary for a professional improv teacher for the evening. Uh, it means that the teacher's time is valued and it means that anyone can come and take the class which is an important balance to strike I think.
0: Brilliant. Um, so I'm going to move on to the audience questions, if, that, if that's all right. Sure. Um, so our first audience question is from Carla Keene, mm-hmm. um, and she asks, if you could see one change in the improv world, what would it be?
1: Um, I would love to see more groups with a critical mass of people who are not uh, straight, white, cisgendered males. Um, Because I think we're at a point where the community is diversifying to a point, but there's still a dominant viewpoint. And I think when the critical mass of a group uh, shifts, the group mind shifts and the artistry of it shifts. I've noticed in casts that were strongly female heavy or strongly LGBTQ heavy, the group mind, as that group works together gently, shift away from what we've learned playing with the dominant cultural set to being something more personal to that group of people. And I think that's a really beautiful way to diversify not just the people who we're playing with, but the art that we're making.
0: Brilliant. Um, so our next question is from Rachel Thorne. and um, She's actually asked two, but they're both really good, so I'm going to ask you both sure Um, so the first one is why are many improvisers reluctant to play against their own gender
1: um, I think that it comes from a place of wanting to do a good job if you do play a different gender Uh, particularly if we're talking about trans non-binary characters it's a bit of a minefield and uh, although I'm very happy for people to do trans non-binary characters and I will teach them how to do it it's something where you do need a little bit of knowledge to do a good job. Um, In terms of playing just male-female or female-male cross, I do think also there are some theaters who discourage it because they want things to be clear and easy. And I do understand that because in mainstream theater or television casting, you're cast to look like the part. Um, but for me improv is a different beast and part of the joy of it is that I can be any gender and I can be a cat or I could be a soccer ball or I could be an elderly Chinese woman if I desperately wanted to um, and I, I really love that about the form that we can explore any world viewer experience Brilliant um, and
0: the next question actually is from Rich as well but it, it kind of leads off of that Um, so she asks how can we create non-binary characters in improv without their gender identity being the focus of the scene or story
1: Um, I think that comes with practice uh, to be honest Um, ten years ago if somebody played a gay character that was what the scene was about and we've kind of we've gone through our reps of that we've done the coming out scene we've done the two straight men awkwardly kissing scene we've moved past it mostly (laughs) Um, And we're at a point now where just any two actors will play a relationship and it's not a big deal. Basically, in this scene that I'm part of in London and more and more around the world, I realize that's not universally been achieved, but it's happening more and more. And I think with trans non-binary characters, we need to have the experience of trying and of getting to know improvisers who are trans and non-binary so that it becomes less of a cookie cutter choice, Mm. and we're playing them as a wide range of interesting humans. Uh, So a non-binary character might just be a really simple, uh, hi, I'm Jex, they, them, and you just introduce yourself with your pronouns as many, uh, non-binary and queer and broadly aware people are starting to do doing pronouns when we introduc- introduce ourselves, we're doing pronouns in email signatures and name tags, and that's just becoming normalized. Uh, so things like that where we can just gently say, this character is non-binary, and then move the scene on, yeah. uh, are really valuable, I think.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so our, our, um, our last question is from Inzi Brenner,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and she asks, five things you love to see in an improv partner. Uh, good listening,
1: uh, good attention to physical boundaries, which doesn't mean not touching. It means touching the people who want to be touched, mm-hmm. uh, which is a different equation. Um, I love when improvisers are delighted by off pieced choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if somebody makes a choice that is Objectively, a bad improv move. For them to be delighted and make it work rather than angry at the person making that choice, I think is a really nice positive mindset. Uh, I love people who have broad knowledge of the world or just specialized knowledge about something that I know nothing about because then they can tell me about it and <laughs> the scene, and I just find it really interesting. Um, and I love when improvisers are nerdy and or just really serious about the craft of improv and getting in the reps and learning the skill set.
0: Brilliant. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your audience questions. I was so, I was like fighting the urge to be like one thing, <laughs> but I did and it's fine. Um, so just to sort of wrap up, um, I always like to ask, so like, what is next for you um, and play like an ally and like what would sort of be... The dream like if you could have anything with it to happen like what would it be Um,
1: I'm really fortunate that I get to tour this workshop around the world Um, it's really really beautiful I've gotten so far to teach it in Europe and Asia and Australia Um, I think next year will be North America and I really really love doing it in totally different cultural contexts because that's part of diversity too and I think I benefit A lot from uh, seeing different communities approaches to diversity and challenges with diversity I really love that Um, next for me personally uh, I'm working on my third book which is about uh, how to improvise a play
0: oh that's another ten (laughs) pounds (laughs) gone oh brilliant well thank you so much for taking the time after having coached for six hours to come and talk more about coaching
1: no worries. I love it. Oh,
0: thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.